Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Raymond Baker, was a newly minted Harvard Business School graduate working in Nigeria in the 1960s when he discovered that foreign businesses were nefariously sneaking money out of the country. After years of working in Nigeria and then internationally as a businessman and consultant, Baker founded the NGO Global Financial Integrity to fight what he's termed illicit financial flows out of economies in the developing world. This is a fascinating conversation about an interesting, though little appreciated aspect of the global fight against corruption. We kick off discussing the problem of illicit financial flows more broadly and one big cause of this problem more specifically, which is what he terms, quote, misinvoicing. You'll learn a lot from this episode. I certainly did. Uh, as always, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com if you want to get in touch with me. Check out our archives or download the app. And now here is Raymond Baker, founder of Global Financial Integrity. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. There are three forms of, of illicit money that move across borders, corrupt, criminal, and commercial. The corrupt component is uh, the proceeds of bribery and theft by government officials. The criminal component, of course, is drug trading and human trafficking and elephant tusk and uh, so forth. And the commercial component uh, stems primarily, not exclusively, but primarily from the misinvoicing of trade for the purpose of shifting money across borders. And among those uh, kinds of uh, mechanisms for uh, illicit outflows, which account for the majority of them? The biggest part of it is the commercial. This has come as a surprise to a lot of people. Um, and perhaps even us when we first uh, realized it, uh, everybody has been, not everybody, a lot of people have been focusing on the corrupt component. And the Western press in particular has very much enjoyed pointing the finger at those corrupt uh, uh, government officials over there in those other countries. Well, in fact, the corrupt component in the cross-border flow of illicit money is the smallest component. Our estimation is it probably amounts to only 5 or 10% of the global total. Uh, the criminal component is next at maybe 25 or 30 or 35% 30 uh, of the global total. Uh, the commercial is by far the largest at, uh, we think, um, um, perhaps 60%, uh, uh, upwards of 60% of the global total. And in the numbers that we can see, 
the numbers that show up in our data, the commercial component is about 80% of the total. I'd love to talk about your your data a little bit in aggregate. So you, uh, your organization, GFI, recently put out uh, a report saying that $1.1 trillion in 2013 can be considered illicit outflows, uh, presumably from the the developing world. Um, How did you get that number? Where does that come from? We utilize data filed by governments with the International Monetary Fund. Um, this, this is the key to, to our research. We don't pull these numbers out of the air. We look at, uh, data filed by governments with the IMF. And we uh, look at uh, two sources of data, two, um, uh, two parts of the data. One is balance of payments data, which is looking at a, a country's, um, uh, Uh, a government's uh, accounts, and where we see a gap between inflows and outflows. In in a perfect world, inflows and outflows should balance each other. Uh, Where they don't, um, that is a source of money that has moved, that, that was unrecorded. That's one of the aspects of what we look at. The second aspect of what we look at is um, the differences in trade figures. Um, Most countries um, file bilateral trade data with the International Monetary Fund. That means that you can look at, uh, for example, Ghana's trade with the United States. And if Ghana says its trade with the United States is X amount, but the United States reports that its trade with Ghana is Y amount, and there's a difference in those two amounts, uh, then that gap uh, mm-hmm. is what we look at. We are looking at gaps in the data, gaps in the, um, in the macroeconomic data that shows up in balance of payment statistics and the gaps that show up in trade data. But all of it is data filed by governments with uh, uh, the IMF. Can you uh, walk me through an example uh, where a, a country, I, I guess, is denied what ought to be perhaps tax revenue from uh, some sort of commercial enterprise? Sure. Let's take um, a, a mining company operating uh, perhaps in um, uh, Latin America or Africa. That mining company um, can import its machinery at an uh, exaggerated price so that the local subsidiary will pay for this machinery at the exaggerated price. That will move money offshore into the uh, account of the uh, mining company. And by the same token, it can it, – that's, that's, that's called over-invoicing. You are over-invoicing uh, the cost of what you're buying. You can also under invoice the cost of what you're selling so that if you are, um, um, mining a copper, for example, and instead of, uh, exporting it at the world market, uh, price, you export it at a lower level, um, then, um, you are shifting money offshore, uh, also, most of the trade component of illicit flows uh, comes from um, misinvoicing of imports and exports. Does that make sense, Mark? Uh, it it 
does. Um, so, so if I'm like a, a mining company from Canada and, and I uh, want to sell like my jackhammer to Brazil, I just sell my $50 jackhammer at $100 and that extra $50 goes where? Uh, the company that bought it for $100 would ask you to take your 50 which is the legitimate cost of the product, and put the other $50 uh, into their bank account uh, in Canada or the Cayman Islands or someplace else. Uh, and is the extractive industry the worst offenders here? Uh, it certainly is in Africa. I can't say that for... Latin America or Asia, um, but certainly for Africa, the, the extractive industries are the biggest offenders, and the countries that have um, um, so much of their economy dependent upon the extractive sector are the countries that are experiencing the largest uh, illicit outflows. Can you discuss a little bit about what methods, what policies that you, that you advocate to curtail it? Like what 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 works, and and what are you pushing for? Well, the the um, the, the key recommendation that that we make in global financial integrity is that uh, every country should avail itself of a world um, um, market price database. Um, GFI um, uh, has this. Um, we we um, we take the prices of twenty five thousand uh, import and export items, um, um, which are recorded under what's called the harmonized uh, system, uh, which identifies uh, different categories of goods. Twenty five thousand different categories of goods. And we look at the price at which um, these goods are traded um, in the United States, uh, the EU countries, and Japan. Uh, we offer this to developing countries as a database, which is continuously updated, so that they can see what is the world market price for this item. So if you've got a, um, uh, uh, a cup in front of you, um, uh, that that is invoiced at a hundred dollars a unit on this uh, invoice that uh, co that comes into the customs department of a developing country, then that hundred dollars a unit uh, leads you to question whether or not that's the right price, mm -hmm. and you go look at the cargo. Um, it's probably been misinvoiced. Uh, on the other hand, it could have gold-plated crescents uh, on it. Uh, uh, it could be worth $100 a cup. But the point is, we provide you with a risk management tool so that you can see the price of what's coming into or what's going out of your country and ask the right questions as to whether this is in accord with world market norms. And that's how one many, step that we take. That's fascinating. So, so what countries are, are using that? Or you said that you said it's, it's a database available to the United Nations. Do you have any information on, on who uses this? We are just offering it now, uh, Mark. It's a, it's a new um, step being taken by GFI. It's the first such database um, uh, made available by anybody uh, to um, uh, pull together the data for, I believe it is now 27 countries in our 
database. We have signed contracts for the use of the database. I love it. In the trenches, fighting corruption and, and illicit outflows. That's, that's a, it's, it's innovative. How did you come up with that particular idea? Well, I've always known, and we've always known, that uh, the, the, the thing that customs departments don't have at their disposal is any idea of what should be the price of what's going under their noses. So if we give them this information, uh, they will be able to do a much better job of uh, determining whether um, you're paying the right price or you're paying uh, an exaggerated price or you are uh, receiving less money than you should. I'll give you an example. Um, this happens to be a matter of, of uh, public record. Uh, we did a piece of work with Guatemala, and we put up on the screen here in our offices um, examples of the exports of bananas, coffee, and sugar from Guatemala. And the room full of Guatemalan government officials was absolutely staggered at how low was the price, how far was the price below world market norms. In other words, these companies were selling their product at rock bottom prices. They were selling it to themselves um, in the United States um, and then reselling it to, um, uh, to processors and retailers uh, uh, and so forth. But that's the, that's the easiest way to move money out of a developing country is you... You sell products to yourself, the, you then uh, uh, resell it, your, your U.S. subsidiary or your European subsidiary resells it, and that subsidiary keeps the, um, uh, keeps the profits abroad. Um, when oil was selling uh, for uh, $100, $120 a ton, um, uh, Russian exporters were exporting oil for ten dollars uh, a ton. Mm. Um, this sort of this sort of thing goes on all the time. So the way, the to, way to like rob governments of things that ought to be tariffed or, or tax revenue. Exactly, and it's not just the loss of uh, government revenue; it's the loss of capital to the economy. Um, that money's gone. Uh, you export a shipload of bananas at a price of um, $20,000, when uh, it docks in uh, New Orleans, uh, it sells for $200,000 to your own subsidiary in New Orleans. You have moved $190,000 out of the country of export. Um, um, and that's not just a loss of tax revenue. It's also a loss of, of uh, assets of the, of the country itself. Uh, so I'd love to learn uh, a little bit more about how you got in, involved in this line of work. So where, where are you from? I'm originally from uh, Louisiana. I went to school at Georgia Tech, went to Harvard Business School, and then went overseas. I uh, went to Nigeria in 1961. Nigeria in 1961. What yep. was Nigeria like in 1961? I, I suppose it was right uh, around the time of decolonization, right? I mean, it was, uh, is one year after yeah. independence. Yeah. So what, what um, brought you there? Um, I, uh, was working for another company. That company had a contract to manage a business in Nigeria, a business that happened to belong to the foreign minister of Nigeria. Conveniently. Uh, excuse me. Could pr probably conveniently. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and, um, 
uh, it wasn't doing well. So he had contracted with my employer to straighten it out. It was my job to uh, uh, make it profitable. And I did. What kind of business was it? It was a bakery. A bakery. The in, oldest bakery in the country. Like a bakery a in Abidjan or something? Or, or what, what uh, town? In, in Lagos. In Lagos? Yeah. Um, and after doing this for the other fellow, uh, the, the company that I was working for, I decided I could do this on my own. And I set up on my own in 1963. And um, after some fits and starts, um, I began to buy small and medium-sized companies. Um, then the Nigerian Civil War came along, mm-hmm. uh, the were Biafran you, conflict. Yeah, were, were, were you still at this point in Nigeria? Oh, yes. yes. So, so I you, lived you, in, you built your, your, your companies in Nigeria. That's right. I lived 15 years uh, in Nigeria well, building what, a group of companies. Talk about it. Like, what, what was the, the atmosphere right after independence in Nigeria like? I mean, how, how welcoming were they to you, the, you know, like a, a Harvard uh, trained <laughs> businessmen coming in and like telling them how to run their business right after, <laughs> I mean, right after they kicked out the British. So, so what, like, how, what was that dynamic like? That was, uh, that's a great question. It was, it was an interesting uh, time. Um, when I first got to Lagos, which is where I lived, Lagos had a population of about 600,000. It now has a population of about 18 million. It's been the fastest growing metropolis, uh, that I know of. Um, at the time that I got there, um, British, um, um, civil servants were still in the ministries British trading companies were doing most of the uh, business in the country. Uh, there are only uh, about six Americans um, um, in Lagos at the time. Uh, so the, uh, the British were a little bit uh, dubious of us Americans uh, showing up uh, so soon after independence. Uh, but the Nigerians were extremely welcoming, and particularly me with a Harvard Business School education um, uh, and being American, I did. Um, I was able to borrow money and buy um, the companies that I had my uh, my eyes on. So I was borrowing heavily, um, uh, buying distressed companies, turning them around. And then by the end of the Civil War, I, uh, I had a group of uh, companies. The, the war ended in 1970. I came out of the Civil War with two manufacturing companies and a trucking business, uh, which I converted to a truck leasing company. Um, and I had a consulting practice on the side, did business with all of the biggest firms uh, in Nigeria. It was a heady experience at that time. Well, how did the, the outbreak of the Civil War uh, affect your life in Nigeria? I mean, can you talk actually a little bit, give, give people who aren't maybe necessarily familiar about the Biafran conflict. I mean, that for a long time was shorthand for like the worst suffering in the world, you know, the, the conflict in Biafra. Yeah. Um, the, the, the first impact... Uh, my wife's a political scientist. Uh, she was teaching at the University of Lagos at the time, teaching um, um, uh, political science. Uh, so we um, we were keenly interested in the politics of the country. One of the things that differentiated us from a lot of other expatriates uh, 
living in Nigeria. And of course, Lagos was the capital of the country at that time, uh, before it moved to Abuja. We had lots of friends in academic circles, business circles, political circles, uh, and so forth. And that was that was uh, um, a, a heady. That was a a, a, a very interesting uh, uh, experience. Um, Lagos um, did not have very much violence. Um, the 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 battle was the battles were being fought in what was then called the eastern region uh, of Nigeria. So we were not. Um, um, we were not in danger. Uh, indeed, my wife and I, every time that we did hear an explosion in Lagos, uh, we would jump in the, in the car and race off to see what was happening. We were, of course, young and had no children at that stage and so forth. Um, one of the effects uh, of, the, um, uh, of the coup d'etats and the civil war and so forth was that my uh, my longest term partner, who was the Speaker of the House of Parliament, um, was of course thrown out of office when the first coup took place. Um, he was later brought back into the government uh, in a lesser capacity later on because he was a very honest man um, and uh, was known uh, to be um, so uh, politically, everybody had got affected uh, somewhere along uh, uh, along the way. Um, at a point, there were uh, some killings going on in Lagos, some pogroms directed at uh, the Ebos, uh, the ethnic group that lived in the Biafran area. Not all of the Ebos went back to Biafra. Um, we had two Ebo young men in our employment. Uh, that we hid in our attic for uh, months and months and months uh, when pogroms were going on. But um, um, the, the thing that, if I could go on with that line of discussion just a moment. Mark, yeah, please. The thing that, that has really changed uh, over uh, these years that I have been involved in Nigeria um, is the kinds of conversations that you normally have um, with people. During the 60s, before the first coup d'etat, even in the midst of the Civil War, uh, even uh, in the first year or two after the war was over and Nigeria was reintegrating and rebuilding, which it did uh, quite satisfactorily. Um, at that time, my wife and I, um, reveled in conversations uh, with our friends and, and acquaintances about the whole subject of nation building. Don't forget, uh, at that time, there was still lots of competition between uh, capitalism and socialism. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it, was, it wasn't clear uh, which way it was going to go in many developing countries. So we used to have the most animated discussions uh, with people about uh, um, uh, politics and economics and uh, uh, international affairs and so forth. Um, you don't have those kind of conversations now. Um, well, capitalism uh, won. <laughs> capitalism yeah. won, and most people in Nigeria are interested in making money 
um, um, as, as quickly as possible. And you just, the, the whole notion of what it, what goes into nation building is not a conversation that uh, um, uh, you enter into very frequently in Nigeria at the present time. So you said you were um, there for, for 15 years. You, you bought and sold a number of businesses. I take it you, you did pretty well? Yes, uh, we did fine. Uh, my wife and I um, finally moved back to the States in 1976. Um, I kept uh, two businesses, sold one a couple of years later, um, and kept the last one up until just six or eight years ago. I finally uh, uh, sold it. It was a manufacturing company, and uh, power failures in Nigeria were so frequent that you just couldn't manufacture anything. We ended up selling it uh, for its real estate value. We had acreage in Lagos and three buildings in Lagos and sold it uh, uh, for um, um, just as a piece of property. Well, I have to imagine that at some point that was actually, you know, serving its intended purpose and manufacturing. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so, so the, the power situation just got so bad that you had to sell this factory for the real estate it sat on? I would estimate that probably 10,000 manufacturing businesses closed in Nigeria um, as a result of several forces. Um, um, the first was structural adjustment. Um, the World Bank was telling developing countries that, no, you should not try to manufacture what you can import more cheaply from somewhere else. Well, the reality is uh, China can underprice anything yeah. uh, that you want to manufacture. And so uh, lots of businesses went out of business uh, in competition with the Chinese. Uh, secondly, power failures put a lot of uh, uh, companies um, uh, out of business. Um, but I would say more than anything else, uh, that whole process began with the structural adjustment process that the uh, World Bank was uh, was pushing mm. import substitution industries, which is what I was in. I, I had uh, two manufacturing companies that were producing products in Nigeria that other people could uh, uh, produce and sell to Nigeria. I don't think they could do it any cheaper than we could. Um, uh, but um, uh, and you're creating jobs in the process. That's right, and there's a lot more jobs created in manufacturing than there are. Yeah. In, uh, trading activity. Well, that's so, so interesting. I just came from this Brookings panel last week. I moderated this panel um, by their Africa Growth Initiative. And one of the big takeaways was, you know, we need to get a lot smarter about promoting manufacturing in Africa because that eventually is going to be the engine for creating a more robust middle class. Isn't it interesting how that discussion has come full circle? Mm -hmm. When I went to Nigeria in the 1960s, everybody was talking about uh, upgrading uh, agricultural produce that is exported. Instead of exporting cocoa beans, do the, make the butter and export cocoa butter instead of just the cocoa beans. Same thing with groundnuts, same thing with uh, palm products uh, and so forth. Um, um, move into the first stage of manufacturing. Uh, that dissipated after about 10 or 15 years, and now we're right back to that same conversation again that we were having 50 years ago about um, uh, upgrading local production into um, uh, the, uh, the next tier 
of intermediate product. Um, so, so you're, uh, I said you were living in the United States in, in the seventies, um, still, you know, having a foot in, in Nigeria though. Um, what were your next steps? How, how did you grow your business? How did you, I guess, become involved in the issue of, of corruption? Well, I had a, um, uh, I set up a, an export company and we were exporting from the United States, um, all over the developing world. Um, and this, um, um, I, I stayed in this business for quite some years, um, until if you recall, um, interest rates in the United States, uh, went up to about, uh, 18 or 19 percent. Um, uh, prices in the United States, uh, went through the roof. Um, and it was impossible to export anything from the United States. And so um, I had to uh, close that business. And I then turned myself to doing economic advisory work for developing country governments. Now, let's, let's go back to when I first got to, uh, to Nigeria. One of the early conversations that I had with a, a, a British gentleman somebody you call an old coaster, somebody that's been on West, been in West Africa for decades. An old coaster? I, I, oh, I've never heard that term before. That's, that's what we used to call him, old coaster. He's an old coaster. He's been up and down the West Coast of Africa for many, many years. There's something so like colonial about that. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> okay. um, I asked this gentleman, uh, uh, how do you do business in Africa? And he snuffed and snorted and so forth and wasn't interested in asking the question. Um, but I pushed him hard um, to, uh, to answer me. And I said, well, okay, now tell me, how do, you imp- how do you price your imported cars and building materials and textiles to sell in the Nigerian market? How do you put a price on that? And he looked at me disdainfully and he said, price? I'm not interested in the price. I'm not trying to make a profit. I had no idea what he was talking about. Don't forget, I just come out of Harvard Business School here um, a little bit earlier. And one of the early, one of the first people that I talked to says, I'm not trying to make a profit. What he was talking about was misinvoicing. All he was supposed to do was to pay the exaggeratedly high-priced imports of what he was bringing from the parent company uh, in London, just pay for your invoices. You can sell it for break-even, a loss, a small profit if you want to, just pay the invoices of what we're shipping to you. That's the whole purpose uh, for which uh, he was in business. It took me a while to figure that out. And ever since then, I've been fascinated with the use of trade to move money across uh, borders. Um, and that's what finally led me to write a book uh, in which I address this subject matter in quite some detail. Um, and the book led to the formation of Global Financial Integrity. Uh, what's the book? When, when did you publish the book? The book was uh, Capitalism's Achilles Heel, published in 2005 by John Wiley and Sons. Uh, and how was it received? Well, um, it it was uh, it was um, well received. It wasn't the bestseller, 
Um, but it has made um, a huge impact. It's the book which led to the formation of global financial integrity has led to um, three words now on the political economy table, uh, illicit financial flows. When we formed global financial integrity, um, the gentleman that I uh, asked to join me as managing director of GFI, Tom Cardamon, the two of us sat down and had a conversation um, about what do we call this money that is just pouring out of developing countries. In my book, I had called it dirty money, but I knew that that made people shrink from the subject matter, made them recoil from the subject matter. We had to come up with something more sophisticated. So we came up with the terminology illicit financial flows. That's a good like uh, UN term. I, I, I can imagine. I, I can see like, you know, UN bureaucrats sort of embracing that more than that's exactly money. what happened. Uh, they wouldn't have embraced dirty money. If we were still calling this stuff dirty money, we wouldn't be anywhere. But we gave it a name that sounded a little bit um, uh, economic, uh, um, certain appeal to uh, the lawyers. We called it illicit rather than illegal. Um, um, you know, something is in those three words that can appeal to various communities. And we started flogging those words. And um, first three or four years um, didn't make a whole lot of progress. And then about the fifth year, we started making a good bit of progress. And that has proceeded over the last five years to the point that now the UN has adopted that terminology. The World Bank has adopted that terminology, the, the uh, IMF, the OECD, uh, to the extent that illicit financial flows are now most frequently referred to as IFFs. Um, referred to by its uh, so now they even have an acronym. Now you know you're in. You're now in. we know we've made it. We yeah, have absolutely. gotten this subject into the sustainable development goals uh, being addressed by the United Nations. We got it into the financing for development document, which was just signed in Addis Ababa last year. Yeah. We got it into the Addis Tax Initiative, which commits all countries of the world uh, to try to curtail uh, illicit financial flows. Uh, we've got it in there. We've we've accomplished um, step one of what GFI was trying to do, which was to get people to appreciate this subject matter. And now we and have already for the past three or four years already been uh, pursuing the directions of, OK, we now understand this uh, phenomenon. It's time to turn to curtailing this reality. And that's where we are now. Uh, and so you've created uh, this database of goods uh, that you can check uh, to make sure that they are not mis-invoiced, the, the, mm -hmm. the price database you, you referenced earlier. Mm -hmm. But isn't it a matter of, of political will to get governments in the developing world, and frankly, the, the developed world as well, to, you know, to impose or force upon their customs officials to actually do the, the, the hard work of, of checking and cracking down on misinvoicing? Yes, and we think we're making uh, progress there. For example, uh, based on global financial integrity's work, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa five years ago designated a high-level panel to uh, address the subject of illicit financial flows going out of Africa. 
led by Tabo Mbeki. Um, we produced our report last year. It was accepted by the African Union. And uh, there's now some head of steam, uh, at least in Africa, uh, to get much more serious uh, about uh, addressing this phenomenon. Yes, there will be governments that don't want to go there. Um, and there will be governments that we don't want to go there because we know that they're not going to uh, um, uh, do anything about this uh, problem. But I think we've turned the corner in government saying, yes, this is real. Um, let's let's come to grips with it. Now, is is this something that, um, for example, like the, the U.S. Department of Treasury or the State Department have um, – you know, like like diplomats, or in the case of the State Department, or or just uh, you know, civil servants working on trying to work with uh, countries in the developing world to use this database. Um, only to a, a, a modest extent. Um, not really there yet. Not really. That's one. That's one way to look at it. Another way is that look at it is that GFI is way out in front. Uh, on this, yes. and um, others are beginning to catch up uh, to our uh, uh, thinking. But um, I wouldn't. USAID, um, um, uh, DFID in the UK, uh, other aid agencies around the world are still thinking very much in the foreign aid. Uh, mode. That is the way, uh, th that is, you know, you, you, you promote development by giving um, foreign aid uh, to these countries. Um, uh, we take a different view uh, in GFI than that. Yes, we're all for foreign aid, for increasing foreign aid. But the best thing that we can do for developing countries is to curtail the outflow of uh, uh, the money that is leaving um, uh, emerging market in developing countries. You mentioned earlier, our estimate is $1.1 trillion of illicit money is flowing out of the developing world. That's about eight times the, one point, uh, the $150 billion um, of um, development assistance that's flowing into developing countries. So we've got about eight times as much illicit money flowing out as the total amount of development assistance going in. It's time that we, um, um, we revise our thinking as to what are, the, what are the most effective ways to promote development. Uh, well, thank you, Raymond. This is, this is so, so interesting. And, and to be honest, not a subject that uh, was, was on my radar. I mean, obviously, the idea of corruption and illicit financial flows, which is a, a term I had heard, is something that you know, I, I was aware of, but the, the nitty-gritty of, of how you fight it and, and how it's uh, perpetrated through misinvoicing is, is not something I, I was well aware of. Well, we're, uh, that's not unusual. We are, it took us nine years to get the, uh, the concept into the hands of the global community of nations, but it is in the thinking now. Uh, as I say, it's been put into the Sustainable Development Goals document, put into uh, Financing for Development uh, document. Um, every government is now uh, at least talking about this subject matter and to some extent wondering, uh, okay, what do we do? And of course, GFI is right there saying, this is what you do. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a fascinating um, uh, first decade, and we're looking forward to the next decade. All right, Raymond, thank you so much for your time.
My pleasure entirely. Thank you, Mark. Alrighty, thank you so much for listening. And I'm sorry about the uh, audio quality of my questions. I don't know what the cause of that was. It never happened before, but I will hopefully ensure that it never happens again. It sort of sounds like I'm underwater some of the time asking these questions. Anyway, sorry about that. Try to get it fixed. See you next time. Bye.